welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today, finally again, with my lovely co-host, Kate Wolf, who is an editor at large at LARB, and we are so excited to welcome her back. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Just a heads up, before we talk about what Kate's been doing since she's been away. (laughs) I want to introduce our guest today is going to be Jonathan Alexander, author of the new memoir, Creep, and the first part of our two-part series on queer memoir for January. Yes. But we'll get into that later. So first, let's talk about what have you been doing, Kate Wolf? Well, I birthed a child. (laughs) No small feet. No. And he was a large child as well. Oh, he was a large child. Not huge, but almost nine pounds. And then I took care of him for a few months. Okay. So Vincent is your first child. He is. And you said probably And also I didn't possibly my possibly last. Possibly last Who one. knows? Who knows? But the future is wide open. I'm, I'm very impressed by people who have uh, many children. I'll just say that. So what has motherhood been like? Is it cool? Is it weird? Is it's it great. It's great. It's, it's difficult, but it's yeah. also there's feelings of superpowers as your right. body changes yeah. to suit the child and- make them stay alive and <laughs> feed them and you also no a, small feet. you become a vessel for your child to prosper so that's been amazing and it's fun I really didn't expect to, I was preparing myself for the worst so I've been pleasantly surprised also viewers can't see but we've been seeing photos of Vincent oh, yeah. and he is just adorable by the way how's the family dog dealing with the new person in the he's, house he's dealing with it well He's now, dealing with it well. Yeah I, at first it was parallel play they didn't seem to acknowledge each other but now they've made a connection. That is great. Yeah, it's, it's very sweet. Also, we do have some interesting book news from the past week, and that is the publication of Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury, an yes. inside look at the Trump administration from basically the campaign up to almost the present. I'm in the midst of reading the book. I've been reading it uh, on my Kindle. I, while I should I'm, get that. Yeah. It's great. I mean, but you read the New York Magazine. I just read excerpt. the New York Magazine piece. So what did you think? I enjoyed the way the story was told. And I Very the, juicy the and point gossipy. that Trump didn't really expect to win wasn't exactly news to me. I mean, I, having the real fine point on it, right. I, I was interested to read that. But other than that, the bad behavior, um, the infighting, yeah. it didn't strike me as news, but I enjoyed the narrative and also was very dismayed at the same time. It seems like a great high school movie script, yes, doesn't it? Yes. Like It's like just teenagers bickering with each other about uh, petty stuff, except, and this is totally true, like you're reading it, you're loving the juiciness of the gossip and then kind of getting to connect the dots, but it's really frightening when you sickening. think that it's like, this is actually what's happening at the highest levels of our country. Mm-hmm. Um, sickening, yeah. I should also say, and I think that any listeners who have read even the excerpt will note that none of it is surprising. I mean, no. it really is utterly unsurprising, though unlike the kind of reporting that we've gotten from the Washington Post and the New York Times over the past year and even during the campaign, it does kind of connect a lot of the dots that we saw from an anonymized source outside perspective and right. really bring you inside in the way that Michael Wolf does. Yeah. Anyhow, so now <laughs> I guess we should get to our guest this week, which, uh, as I was speaking saying- Speaking of is, creeps. Yeah, speaking of creeps. Oh, that's a great transition. So our show this week is all about creeps. So I actually loved this book. I thought it was really fun to think about creepiness. And Jonathan Alexander does a really great job of probing that issue, like really thinking like who's a creep? And he does it by working through his own personal experience. 
And yeah, I just really liked it. Yes, I related, and I think I'm a creep. You're a creep. <laughs> We're all creeps. That's fine. Okay, all right, let's get to that conversation. Great. We're joined in the studio today by Jonathan Alexander. Jonathan is the Chancellor's Professor of English, Informatics, Education, and Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of California, Irvine. So I guess there is no way we can dispel the notion that <laughs> academics only wear one hat and maybe boost the notion that neoliberal education means that you wear several different hats. Jonathan's work often explores the intersection between sexuality, literacy, rhetoric, and composition. He is the author and editor of numerous books, including Writing Youth, Sexual Rhetorics, Methods, Identities, and Publics, and Techni, Queer Meditations on Writing the Self. His most recent book, Creep, A Life, A Theory, and Apology, explores both his own experience growing up as a creep queer kid in the Deep South and thinks more broadly about what it means to be a creep and to be creepy. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you very much. So the word creep in this Mm. book is kind of a moving target. Mm. I feel like it's never completely pinned down and there's so many varieties of it. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about how you define creep. It's such a good question, especially after the election. (laughs) I realized (laughs) I was finishing this book up and submitting it to my editor and actually mentioned Donald Trump's candidacy for president in the introduction to the book and then had to change that to now President Donald Trump Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I I cite him as a kind of creep. And I thought, wow, I'm opening up a huge can of worms because this is obviously a term that I want to deploy critically. And yet I'm running some risks in identifying myself as creepy. And I want to exist somewhere between that, between defining the term very specifically to identify a certain set of people or a certain kind of way of being in the world, mm. and then also keeping it a little open, a little mobile, to use your word, as a, as a moving target, as a term that can be critically deployed. With that said, especially given the last year, and, and not just our dear president, but also the the various ways in which creepiness has been revealed to saturate Hollywood and the other sure. kinds of real, true creepiness. And notice how I found myself saying, true creepiness, as though I want to differentiate, right? it's a good And say there are some creeps, and then there's creepiness. And so I I, I do it this way. I've come to kind of think of creepiness as, well, there is absolute creepiness that is awful, terrible, a kind of predatory creepiness that often exists in a power relationship or where there's a strong power differential between people, where people are preying on other people. That's not really how I am identifying. That's not the creepiness that I think is of real interest to me. The creepiness that I'm interested in is, as I try to explore in the book, is the way we're often invited to understand ourselves as creepy and to think of our own sort of interior spaces our own deep subjectivity as creepy, based in part on, it could be erotic or sexual interests, or just kind of a natural interest in other people. And how do we navigate that? How do we navigate our curiosity about other people in ways that aren't predatory, but are nonetheless Mm. authentic and human? I was thinking, and Kate and I were talking about this before the show, the book made, and one of its real successes, I think, is to really make you think about what the creep is and what creepiness is. And it occurred to me that there is a temporality to creepiness because it seems to me that it's like before you commit the act, 
you're merely a creep. Like creepiness <laughs> is about potential for harm, right? So if we think about it outside of the sexual, which I think is actually how we almost universally think of creep when we use that. He's a creep, like, mm -hmm. you know, stay away from him. But in the horror movie, you feel creepy when something is about to happen, not when it has happened, right? right? So the creep is actually somebody who has the potential for a particular kind of violence or displacement, but hasn't yet committed that violent act, right? So like the mm -hmm. creep who hangs around like a kid's playground <laughs> is a creep, but the person who molests children is a pedophile, right? right. So he right. can't it's quite be, yeah. like, yeah. you see yeah. what I'm saying? So Absolutely. I'm wondering, yeah. is there like a temporal yeah. boundary to creep? Is creepiness just potential? And that's why it's ambiguous. Yeah, I, I think there is a sort of combined spatio-temporality here because I initially started talking about it as a space, a kind of interiority, not an action. Mm -hmm. I don't go around predating on people, but I certainly am curious about people. Yeah. Uh, so I feel inside a kind of creepy curiosity. I think that nicely intersects with the temporality you're talking about, mm. which is, oh, if I actually started molesting my students, I would, <laughs> I would be in serious trouble. Right. You wouldn't be a creep. You would be something else. I would right? be yeah. right, subject to legal and other kinds of disciplinary right. action. And so maybe there's another dimension of this, which is interesting. It's this sort of interior disciplining you know, that Foucault talks about mm. so lovingly, the ways in which we discipline ourselves, in which we come to identify inside and monitor ourselves. And I'm curious about how creep is one of those words in which that we use to self-reflexively discipline ourselves with sometimes. Oh, I don't want to appear creepy. You know, the fact that it's a self-disciplining, I think, is also key here because there's many times in the book. So a couple mm. of the examples that you use are one like taking a kind of surreptitious photo right. of someone else, which yeah. like literally I think everyone has. Of a cute right? young Of a cute barista. young bottom. Yeah. 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 Or, well, yeah. Of, of his bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so like that kind of thing, it seems to me you're projecting that mm. that person, this also comes up in the gym culture stuff, which I want yeah. to talk about a little yeah. bit more later. But you're projecting somebody else's response as a way of kind of mm. affirming or identifying your creepiness. Right. Who knows? Maybe that guy is like, actually, well, I like being looked at. But totally. not, yeah. not always, because I think that one of the, there's a section in the book, it centers around a coffee shop where you mm -hmm. go that's full of mm -hmm. younger people, mm -hmm. or this is one of the examples I particularly enjoyed. And you often feel yourself perhaps being interpreted as a creep there, right. partly because of your age, which yeah. is something that we should also talk about, mm -hmm. the relation of creepiness to the old versus the young. Yeah. But also because you're not, no one's giving you back the kind of attention you're giving to others. You don't necessarily <laughs> think that people are interested in you. Right. So that's where you begin to feel creepy. So it's a hall of mirrors in a weird way, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a sort of, I'm projecting onto them my own insecurities about growing older and wondering, do I even belong into this space? And, and who knows what they're actually thinking? Right. I mean, right. as Eric suggests, maybe if that kid knew that I snapped a surreptitious picture of his behind, that he would be titillated. Right. Know, don't know. But it's in the potentiality that the yeah. creepiness lies there. To take the next step would be to engage uh, possibility of acceptance or rejection. And then mm. that's a whole other level of, of engagement. And you, and you do do that yeah. at one point in that's the book true. with someone from the coffee shop. Yeah. yeah, and I've conflated a lot. Memoir is, is interesting because I find myself in this experimental book conflating a lot of different kinds of narratives. But yeah, I felt it was important at some point to try to enact or realize some of the potentiality of an interior 
creepiness and see what happens and just describe that experience, in particular a projection, which I think is something we can all agree with or at least relate to. Maybe you could walk us through, I think there's a real evolution in the book, especially because it has a memoir element Mm -hmm. of you starting out as someone who's kind of accused of being a creep by those around you for reasons maybe you could describe Mm -hmm. that are more of a repressive nature where they see something about you that, you know, Mm -hmm. you can't end at a kind of embrace of being a creep, especially as you (laughs) look at it through more cultural figures like J.R. Ackerley or the other theorist who wrote a book actually about creepiness. Yeah, Adam Kotzko. Okay. So, yeah, maybe you could just talk about the evolution in the book of For you personally. Yeah, absolutely. And I felt it was important to begin the book with a sort of a brief bio sketch. So that first third, a creep, a life, a theory, an apology is that life is the attempted memoir, specifically focusing on my childhood and feeling very early on. I was a little to the side of most of the other kids in the neighborhood. And I think even my parents understood me as sort of odd, unusual. And I remember the word, even before I was labeled as fag or queer or gay mm-hmm. or fruit, which is a word we don't use That's anymore That's an old today. one. That's yeah. an oldie. Yeah. <laughs> I remember being kind of identified as creepy. And so there's that, that sort of calling into being and sort of interpolation, right, of creepiness that I've carried within me for a long time. And I, as I got older and came out and became queer identified and became a queer activist and then a queer theorist, et cetera, I realized that I had always kind of kept with me a sort of creep identification, Mm. that there was a dimension to my queerness, which always felt, even to me, still a little bit creepy, a sort of fetishization for the surreptitious, the, the, I won't say not the closeted, but the hidden well, it's catching your pleasure on the run. Exactly. Right? Like yeah, under the for radar. Sure, yeah. For sure. So I thought, I want to explore that term, the creep, not to do the same thing that we did with the term queer, which is active recovery. I think there's a lot of usefulness in recovering queer mm. as a term. I don't know that we should do the same thing with the term creep, but I wanted to sort of more granularly describe what it was like to feel not just queer, but to have a legacy of creepy queerness, Mm. if that makes Mm. sense. Yeah. Can you actually, to kind of touch on what you were beginning to talk about, so you grew up queer or gay in the Deep South. Mm -hmm. You grew up in, was it Louisiana? There was Louisiana and Alabama that seemed to be like Uh, Mississippi. Mississippi, sorry. So I grew up in Kentucky. Uh So I think there is a particular kind of, now I grew up in Kentucky in the late 80s, early 90s, and because it was a full teenager in the 90s. But I do think that there's a way in which the Deep South handles queerness Mm -hmm. in a way that it would make total sense to me why you would have a creep identification. So can you talk a little bit about that, like what being gay in the Deep South is like and maybe how that shaped you and your account of of creepiness and queerness? Absolutely. I can't speak to what it's like to grow up gay right now in the Deep South. It's been a while. I'm now 50. And I grew up in the 70s and entered adolescence in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And so at that time, given my family structure, the community in which I lived, the schools I went to, it really was, there were a few things worse to be. (laughs) Being gay was about the worst thing that one could potentially be. Just the absolute abject subject position to hold. And when I would go to school, even teachers, not just fellow kids, classmates, but teachers themselves would sort of openly mock homosexual people, mm. 
berate gay relationships. And then, of course, not to mention church. I mean, I grew up, went to Catholic churches, and then we, when I was a kid, early teenager, we became Southern Baptists. So from the pulpit, I constantly heard that people like me, and of course, nobody knew. I mean, I kept it deep inside. People like me were destined for the fires of hell. So just all of that certainly created a sense in which, wow, this is stuff I really better not talk about with anybody. And I think that sort of engender that early sense of deep down creepiness, which is I must be a really awful human being Mm -hmm. if I feel this particular Mm -hmm. way. And so part of writing Creep, to get back to your comment about age, is a generational one as well, in that I want in some ways to make sure that we don't forget that we document and archive the fact that some people have grown up like this. And Hopefully fewer and fewer grow up like this, especially in the South, but people do grow up with deep senses of shame and and self-hatred, and that it takes a lifetime to unravel that and to try to understand what that means for one's life and how one then erotically cathects or thinks about oneself intimately with other people, not just politically, but intimately. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK Studios in North Hollywood. We've been speaking with Jonathan Alexander, author of Creep. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. So Janet Fitch is here to give us a book recommendation. Janet Fitch is the author of White Oleander, Painted Black, and most recently, The Revolution of Marina M. Janet, what book will you be recommending today? I'm going to recommend a book called The Suitcase by Sergei Dovlatov. Okay. I think I've heard of this book. Tell us more about it. Well, Dovlatov was invited to leave Russia. He got a permit to leave in the 80s. And uh, he was only permitted to take three suitcases of stuff out of the Soviet Union. And he was outraged. How can I leave with only three suitcases? But he found when he started packing that he only needed one suitcase. And mm-hmm. he put some stuff in there. And when he got to America, he threw it in a closet and never looked at it again. When his daughter was eight, she pulled the suitcase out. And she asked her father, what's this? What's and he opened it up. He hadn't opened it since he arrived. And there were eight objects in that suitcase. And he proceeds to tell us the story of each object. And surrounding each object was a story so Russian that it just makes you, you laugh out loud. It is so funny and so real. Many of the stories are about how his friends and brother got him into some terrible situation. Because in Russia, Friendships are extremely close, and when your friend asks you to do something or your brother asks you to do something, you do it. You don't right. say, uh, I think this is a terrible idea. You're on your own. No. You know, I've learned this the hard way from say, my family. Yeah. It's a terrible idea, but you're my brother, and away we go. So the Finnish socks that were an import idea, the mayor of Moscow's shoes, which ended up in the suitcase – the story of Legere's jacket and why he has it, 
these are so Russian, so funny. It disappears off of my bookcase. Every three or four months, I have to buy a new copy because we've given away so many copies of this book. I absolutely recommend it to everyone. It's the one that I think most people will really enjoy. It's a lot like Primo Levi's The Periodic Tables, where Mm -hmm. he talks about an element and how, because he was a chemical engineer, and how it relates to some story in his past. But this is really funny. It sounds great. Will you tell us the title again and the author? It's The Suitcase by Sergei Dovlatov. And now we feel like we've all gone to Janet Fitch's house and stolen one of her books. Thank you so (laughs) much, Janet. Thank you. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Jonathan Alexander, author of Creep, A Life, A Theory, and Apology. Now we're speaking about young people. Maybe we could go back to the question of creepiness and age. Mm-hmm. You mention in the book two films that have to do with couples shifting and a younger couple and an older couple. And again, with the star- story of J.R. Ackerley and right. his novel, The We Think the World of we You. We Think the yeah. World of You, yeah. which is the story of him courting a younger yeah. man. Yeah. So you, you felt creepy at... Mm being young mm-hmm. for because of what people were saying about being gay right. but as you get older you still <laughs> you still feel creepy even though yeah. you you are come out you yeah. get married um, and and the reason you feel creepy shifts um, so yes. what that so that's and I think that's an, an interesting other aspect of creepiness that you mentioned in the book, what is that relationship from young to old? The kind of vampire, almost vampiric uh-huh. <laughs> relationship. It's a great question. And I think a lot of it has to do with now as an as an older man looking at, at younger people, looking at the world in which they're growing up, not having my own kids, having early decided that I did not want my own children, but nonetheless being very interested in young people. I've mean, been an educator for well, over 25 years now. So I've always been involved with young people and think a lot about my own relationship to young people and, and what do I what do I offer them and what do they take from my classes or from my educational encounters with them. And so as I've gotten older and recognize, wow, I'm still very much involved in the lives of, of many different kinds of young people, I think about the sort of youth that I wish I had had or, or didn't, ha- didn't really have the opportunity to have. And so... My my interest in young people is always multiple and double-edged in, in that sense, and that I, I, I want them to be able to, to inhabit the kind of world that I didn't have, and yet I'm also envious of them in a way, and that they have now uh, opportunities and possibilities and, and ways of thinking about themselves that were just not available to me at all. And so that creates its own dense psychological paradigm uh, that I've find myself wanting to be very careful with. Mm-hmm. It's too easy to project onto to young people uh, a sort of wish fulfillment that, uh, that, that I have. And yet at the same time, I want them to understand that they do have opportunities and possibilities that I, that I did not have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so 
it's it's tricky. Does that does that make sense? Sure, yeah. sure. And it fuels a lot of my own continued investment and engagement as an, as an educator. Uh, and you you write about you had an uncle mm-hmm. who was also gay, mm-hmm. and that everyone and everyone knew. Yeah, and he was so. Did yeah. you? But did you know at the time? Well, it, he, did it, he help you? This is this is an interesting story, and and it, what was fascinating to me uh, in looking back on and some of the first writing I did about about creep that that went into the book creep was actually about my uncle because he he passed away from cancer right as I was entering into adolescence and right as I was coming into my own sense of myself as possibly mm-hmm. queer. Uh, we knew he was gay, but I actually didn't know that really deeply know that or n- know what that meant until just months really before he died. And so I often think about him as as the real missed opportunity, the missed family opportunity for for me, because if he had survived, I might have had someone in my extended family whom I could have really identified with, who might have been helpful in helping me navigate what it meant to be gay. I don't know. I mean, I, I'll, I'll never know that. But even his own gayness, while it was a sort of known thing, was sort of the open secret, what not something that was talked about. Uh, and in fact, after he died, there was quite a bit of, actually, even to this day, some of my cousins say, oh, you know, what was he like? Oh, do you think he might have died of the AIDS? And so there's this, this oh. patho- patho- hmm, pathology, pathologization, that even to this day in my family sort of uh, surrounds him and and his life. And uh, so part of what is interesting to me is, is he, he was a, a possible queer forebear uh, father figure taken from me mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. before I could really understand how that would have been useful. So, you know, I want to I want to thicken some of this conversation about mm-hmm. um, creepiness and age mm-hmm. by thinking about two objects that, as I so I read your book on the plane when I was flying back from my in laws in West Palm Beach. Um, and I had just seen Call Me By Your Name, mm-hmm. which I don't know if you've seen I have, the film. Okay, yeah. so you've seen the film. And then the bookmark that I was using for your book, which I chose specifically for it, <laughs> was a bookmark that's a promotional. I don't know if this movie is out or if it's even coming out, given what's happened. But um, it's Kevin Spacey and Nicholas Holt. And they're juxtaposed together, both faces in profile, but kind of oriented mm. towards one another. And it's for a movie called Rebel in the Rye. Hmm. And I was thinking about these two things. So when my husband pitched the um, call me going to see Call Me yeah. By Your Name before I really knew what it was about by saying, oh, yeah, it's about an older like professor type who has sex with like a 17 year old boy. And I was like, oh, great. It's and that's supposed to be the best like gay movie of the year. And then I went to see it, Rapturous. I'm like, I loved it It, it, for many ways. In many ways for me, that movie was the first movie I can think of, or at least in recent memory, where you had a kind of gay coming to consciousness Mm -hmm. that wasn't haunted by trauma or the threat of discovery. Uh And so I'm thinking about these two things and I'm like, okay, this age differential not creepy. Mm-hmm. And then, and it's Army Hammer and Timothée Chalamet. And yeah. then I'm looking at the other hand, I'm like, Nicholas Holt and Kevin Spacey. Now that looks right. creepy to me. Now we should note that in Call Me By Your Name, the the gay professor figure, as you say, is only 24. He's still a right. grad Right, and so they're, student, they're so, seven years yeah. difference between the two of yeah. them. 
and age of consent is different in Italy. Yes, et cetera, sure, et cetera. Sure. So it's, yeah. it, I found myself having to really mark that for a lot of people whenever I talk about this film. Right, that it's not like, actually. Wait a minute. Okay, yeah. You know, you want to see a film about a professor preying on a young child. <laughs> it's like, well, it's not exactly, exactly that. Not yeah. exactly that. Right. And in fact, it, what's interesting to me about that film and one of the reasons why I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it's out is that it does speak speak to a sort of dynamic in a lot of gay male culture uh, that many of us did have initial sexual experiences with slightly older men. Uh, not mm. not always drastically older, although that that happens. But right. but there is a kind of mentoring that I think a lot of uh, young gay men in particular experience from older men. And mm. I remember uh, reading on social media when this film was coming out, and, and Army Hammer in particular has has faced a lot of questions about his his role in this film, and you know, like, are you promoting gay predation? Blah 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 right. blah. And I remember some some friends on social media saying, "Wow, you know, when I was seventeen, I wish a twenty four year old had come on to me." Mm-hmm. And that's a provocative thing to say, particularly at this moment. Sure, right. sure, right? Uh, and yet, something that I think. We need to to continue to talk about and and to think about how are different people introduced into different sexual cultures and different ways of being sexual. Yeah. And speaking of online, I I wondered if you feel I feel like there are certain like creepy heroes of this book. Mm. Um, you know, <laughs> Samuel Delaney or mm. Dennis yeah. Cooper, yeah. cultural heroes. Yeah. Uh, but in the general cultural, do you think that uh, creepiness is becoming more prevalent? I mean, because we talk, yeah. you know, you write about mm-hmm. online, tw- Twitter, mm-hmm. Instagram, mm-hmm. all these things where you can creep on someone. That's right, yeah. Um, yeah. That's another as- aspect of the creepiness in the book. But yeah. so how, what do you think about that? Well, it, it's, a, it's, again, double-edged. I think there are many more ways in which we can creep on each other. But because of that, we're now more hyper-conscious uh, about how we might be creeped upon. And mm-hmm. so... Mm. Interest can often veer in unexpected and maybe less good ways, or at least I might perceive if some if I feel somebody is creeping on me, I might now be more much more sensitive, more hypersensitive to it because I realize, oh, there are so many ways in which someone can find out information about me. So I don't know. It, it's 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 just part of the weirdness of living in a highly mediated age uh, in which such information is so readily accessible. Uh, we put ourselves out there, and yet, what are people actually going to do with that information? Right. You know, um, we can't always control it. So, I want to, as we kind of get ready to wrap up here, I wanted to return to a scene that I think is liminal for kind of questions about creepiness, which mm-hmm. is the gym. Uh-huh. I think that, and and you kind of actually waffle when you're talking about the gym between like feeling like. Oh, it's cre- the, like there's moments of creepiness at the gym and then it's like totally fine. And and it's and there's a lot of like projection and I've always thought that of the gym as like both this place where everyone is creeping on everyone uh-huh, else uh-huh. and it's actually totally okay. I should say and cuz we were ta- Kate yeah. and I were talking about this yeah. before. I am saying this from like a male and a gay male perspective. Right. But yeah. like when I see straight guys at the gym, mm-hmm. they I see them looking at each other. And oh, then the culture yeah. of display Absolutely. in yeah. the in the like yeah. in the locker yeah. room and all yeah. that like, you know, so I think that there's a way in which the gym is such a fascinating uh-huh. space in which people are almost 
courting uh-huh. like looks uh-huh. and in uh-huh. which like everyone else is also looking at everyone else. Oh, and yeah. I want to be clear, yeah. it's not oh, it's not sexual exactly. Sometimes right. it is. Yeah. I'm not saying that it's not, but um, that there's like a it's a liminality that I think yeah. is an interestingly pliable scenario for creepiness in your account. Yeah, totally. I couldn't not in some ways write about the gem because <laughs> as, as a kid. You know, one of the things you always hear, oh, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to shower with, a, we don't want to change in front of the the facts, yeah, uh, because they might be checking us out. You know what the reality is? Sometimes we are checking you out. Right. <laughs> you know? So I think I, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to apologize for for. Oh, well, sure, you know, we people check each other out. That's and sometimes that's straight guys goes. are checking us out, and and they are. I mean, one of the most interesting experiences I've ever had. I uh, work uh, with a colleague who lives in Hollywood, and she took me to the equinox in Hollywood and of course everybody at this high-end gym is just absolutely beautiful and so I go into the to the curiously labeled boys room and here are all of these guys and I know not everybody in this in this gym is gay there are all of these guys in their designer underwear walking around preening just yeah. just just like look at me you know and I thought, wow, okay, so I'm 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 on to something. Obviously, I'm hardly the first to talk about you know sexuality or eroticism or even just preening in the in the in gem culture, but certainly gems are that kind of strange space in which we go to be looked at. Yeah, and we go to and do it's things, all about the body, and it's too. all about the body. Yeah. We go to do things to our body mm-hmm. so that people look at us differently. Yeah. And sometimes that that's creepy. At other times, uh, it's just absolutely delightful because you find people. I, I, I've been stopped in, in restaurants by by people who say, "Oh yeah, you know, we go to the same gym. You know, I see you." I'm like I had no, no idea. idea who you no idea who you are. <laughs> They've clearly been watching me. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily in a, in a in a weird way, mm-hmm. but there's a sort of noting. I notice you. Yeah. Uh, I, I notice your routine. I, I, I notice how your body has changed. And mm-hmm. for for somebody of my age, for somebody uh, who grew up in the way that I did, this sort of just phenomenally liberating. Yeah. It's a kind of delightful creepiness. Yeah, like keep look, keep looking. But have you ever been creeped out by someone who told Ooh, you they were question. watching you? Um, n- have you ever been creeped out? Well, no. I, in that, I don't allow myself to be creeped out by it. There okay. is a at the gym I I go to. Uh, there is uh, a young, well, not young, uh, maybe a little bit younger than I am, person who has expressed more interest than maybe I was willing to engage. Oh, I see. And I found myself, you know, oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And yet, you know, trying to draw a boundary, saying, I, I'm not going to go there with you. Wow. Tables, uh, the tables were turned. The table, the, yes. <laughs> Wait, so but that's how, but that's what you do. I mean, I right. think that this is part of what what we have to do, which is we have to at least what I would advocate for is let's acknowledge our own creepiness, but let's also have some good boundaries when we want to have good boundaries. That nothing is, wrong with that. That is a perfect note to close on. How to be ethically <laughs> creepy. <laughs> I love it. We've been speaking Thank to you. Jonathan Alexander, the author of Creep, A Life, A Theory, An Apology. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Jonathan. Thank you both. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. 
If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour.